Hey there, welcome to The Pseudo Show. This is Brandon. Before we get into our episode around virtualization and containers, I wanted to just do a few housekeeping items. Make sure to go get subscribed to the YouTube channel. I'll be publishing several videos over the next coming days that I've delayed. One of them will be a review on a laptop. The other one will be a series of videos around open source identity management. Really looking forward to getting those out and getting everyone's feedback. And sometime in the podcast that I mentioned, in the previous podcast, I meant to say a previous podcast about virtualization. If you're interested in that, I'll have a, a link to that episode down below in the show notes. Now I bring you Virtualization Revisited. Today's episode is brought to you by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Bitwarden is an open source password management tool whose feature set rivals any other tool on the market today. Not only is Bitwarden open source, it is regularly audited by security professionals. You can get started for free at bitwarden.com tux, and plans start at just $10 per year. Thank you to Bitwarden for sponsoring The Pseudo Show. This episode of The Pseudo Show is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Head on over to do.co slash tux2022 to get started with a $100 credit. DigitalOcean has a comprehensive portfolio of cloud infrastructure, so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most building apps that grow your business. With predictable pricing and robust product documentation, get support at, get support at every stage of growth with simple, powerful cloud computing. As a listener of the Pseudo Show and a member of the Touch Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash touch2022. We want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of The Pseudo Show. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming on to talk about virtualization with me. Thanks for having me, Brandon. There's been a lot of news over the last, it's probably been a year since some of the changes in both proprietary and some open source virtualization have occurred. Not calling anything out. Just decided to kind of bring this topic back for a quick episode. Get into you know what's new in in uh, the virtualization and a little bit in the uh, container space. Not not at the Kubernetes level per se. Well, a little bit at the Kubernetes level, but kind of getting down to basics and uh, where it makes sense to use a container over a virtual machine and vice versa. Bill, I know you're a fan of uh, Proxmox. You, you use it in your, I believe you use it in your home lab. Sure do. I, I don't believe, in the last episode, I really didn't talk about it. Everyone seems to talk about it. And I mostly focused uh, the conversation on Overt. That's my background. I've been using Overt since uh, Red Hat acquired Kubernetes. Just for the listeners who may not be familiar with uh, Proxmox, just describe it. Proxmox is a KVM-based hypervisor 
that is built upon Debian. And one of the things that I really like about Proxmox is the interface and the install. The install is very straightforward. You download the Proxmox ISO, burn it to your media, follow a few basic prompts to set up what storage you would like to use for Proxmox. And then when the install is finished, you reboot the system into its environment, log into the web interface, and away you go. The simplicity of that website makes it very attractive for me to show it, not only to the people that I work with, but also to my clients and say, hey, there's another alternative out there for you if you are not interested in using VMware or Hyper-V. And look how elegant this looks. The other thing that I really like about Proxmox is it's very easy to set up advanced networking, multiple bridges, multiple VLANs. It's also very easy to set up different backend storage options such as Gluster, Ceph, ZFS, and many others that may appeal to you. Another feature about Proxmox that I really like about it versus other hypervisors is it does have some backup built in, uh, backup features built in to the web interface. Proxmox is essentially that easy button. It is ubiquitous in home labs. It's uh, if you just need a quick solution, plug and play, it is essentially there. More advanced, more enterprise class features. I know some of them are there, but I, I haven't used Proxmox in years. Seeing others for enterprise class type virtualization looking more towards XCPNG, which is not KVM based, but actually Zen server based. So I, I actually have two hosts at home. One is running XCPNG and one is running Proxmox. One of the people that I work with is a huge fan of XCPNG and really insisted that I install it on a machine and, and kick the tires on it. A couple of the features of XCPNG that I really like are that it has more backup options than Proxmox does, but I feel like the interface is not as polished as Proxmox and you need to run a VM or another machine as the XOA or the Zen orchestrator appliance in order to be able to have a web interface or use some of the more advanced features. For me, I started off using a CentOS machine running VMware 2.0 as a binary application. And then when that stopped working, I needed to find something else that was just as easy to use, which is why I gravitated towards Proxmox. I am a fan of many types of hypervisors. I've been using virtual machines since 1997 and I, love being able to spin something up quickly and then shut it down or pick it up and move it somewhere else. XCPNG, I feel like could have more potential if it was given a bit of additional love. I used to work on Zen server many, many years ago, actually specifically just Zen, like the uh, Zen uh, based hypervisors actually are based on SUSE. This is many, many years ago. They were fine. It, it worked. I mean, the overall container is QEMU, but there's still a conversion process if you decide to move it to a KVM host. At least there used to be. I haven't done a Zen to KVM conversion in quite some time. Uh, it may not be the case anymore. Pro probably just a QCOW move and away you go. I know Zen at one point required um, a guest agent so the guests could 
have para virtualization functions that it that it needed. Uh, that, that I don't remember if that's still the case or not, but that the the portability is uh, for me it's so attractive about KVM because I can use uh, an overt VM on a standalone KVM host. I can use a standalone KVM uh, VM on Proxmox, etc. I can even now take those into Kubevert, and that's just based on KVM. I think one of the features of KVM that matters is that portability and having it available on a wide variety of hardware platforms is rather important. If, if you look at the advent of the AMD Epic processors and some of the new stuff that Intel is doing, people are picking and choosing different types of hardware for either price point or need. And a lot of what it made people gravitate towards Zen early on I think was the performance over KVM. And as processors have gotten faster and faster and we've built out better and better hypervisors, that overhead of running KVM matters less and less. And even then, uh, KVM has gotten a lot of those para-virtualization functions as well that, that Zen has. Being able to, to use the para-virtualized uh, capabilities around network cards, graphics, etc. So yeah, that overhead is is gone more or less thing is uh, my, for me the big thing with uh kvm is that it's it's been adopted uh, in terms of paid market share yeah ob obviously vmware is the uh, clear winner there but if you look at the overall market share of what where kvm is in whether that's unpaid infrastructure or or look at the cloud providers Almost every single cloud provider is using KVM. So it's getting the most development. It's getting the uh, most, uh, it's getting the latest uh, features and functionality that people expect from a hypervisor. And it's uh, moving into the uh, container space, whether if we're talking, like I mentioned earlier, Kubevert, Kubevert uh, utilizes uh, KVM, whether if we're, whether if you're talking pure upstream Kubevert or Harvester from SUSE, we can talk about that in a minute, or OpenShift virtualization, which uh, integrates uh, Kubevert into OpenShift. Yeah, K KVM has just become ubiquitous. It's, it is more or less the industry standard for hypervisors, minus uh, like the enterprise, like enterprise virtualization, that, that, that space is more or less owned by VMware. Yeah, I think they have 70% market share in that space. It's uh, no contest. We'll even look at the development that has gone into KVM and Cockpit together. You can basically fire off a very nice set of virtual machines through the Cockpit interface. It's very intuitive. And unfortunately, you don't see that with Zen, where you see it with KVM. But that, that means that Companies like Red Hat who have adopted the cockpit standard of managing machines have that ability to play with KVM-based VMs very easily. And cockpit can do some really fun things that they're, I think are pretty fun, <laughs> like move a VM from one host to another that doesn't share storage. That like That's something that it, yeah, it's just doing a bit for bit copy. The fact that I can just do it inside the interface, give it the URI of the uh, of the target host I want it to go to, and and it and it moves over. 
that that's awesome. Cockpit as a virtualization interface evolved so quickly. In fact, I've actually replaced Overt in my home lab. That's you know, I'm pretty famous for using Overt in my home lab. I, I have completely migrated off of Overt to standalone KVM. It's uh, a Fedora host with Cockpit. It handles everything I need these days. I can do snapshots. I can do PCI pass-through, quickly create new VMs through the interface because it will just download the ISO or I can give it a kickstart target right in the uh, VM creation window. It's, for me, that's it's a huge time saver, makes automation much easier. Over, I could do a lot of automation, but I was dealing more with, with uh, the over API. I was not and creating VMs inside the interface now less intuitive than it is in cockpit cockpit is i i can't i can't uh, harp on it enough it, i think it's awesome well, let me ask you this with that setup that you have are there certain ansible playbooks that you're able to create that integrate with your system yeah i can just use a uh, libvert uh the libvert apis and that's all cockpit's doing it's utilizing the libvert apis to create start and stop vms Actually, for creating VMs, it's actually utilizing uh, a bunch of tooling from the libguestfs project. For example, when I go and create a VM and I say I just want to create a, v a Fedora 36 VM, it will actually go and download Fedora 36. Or I, th I think when this releases, Fedora 37 will be either released or releasing the following week. So it would, in that case, so download Fedora 37 or 36, whatever, and uh, automatically configure a minimal install. And that's using libguestfs, uh, specifically the vert install capability. So that vert install uses a, a kickstart. I believe it's, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a kickstart file. Uh, that's a uh, pretty standard. It, it's just like pretty minimal. It's just, uh, installs a minimal, uh, footprint of Fedora or rel or any other supported distribution inside of vert install. Pretty sure it also supports Debian based distributions and pass the, uh, a root password or, uh, admin user and it's password and you're done. You, you can also pass through cloud in it scripts. If, uh, you want to use cloud in it. I personally prefer to just do uh, kickstarts to configure everything the way I like it. That's just my been my preference. Cl Cloud in it definitely has its place in a, in like an open stack environment or in the public cloud, but I personally just prefer to do kickstarts. A cloning a VM, for example, it takes a uh, takes about a minute. It takes about two and a half minutes to do a kickstart install on my local network. Talk about a time saver. Yeah, it's not a huge time save between the two. I, and uh, I, I just prefer to do yeah the kickstart build. Bill, I know one of the things that you brought up with Proxmox is how easy it is to handle the uh, backups. Like it's all integrated into the UI. That's one of the probably the big thing that's lacking for me. I, I, I don't ever see something like that coming into the UI, but the way I handle that, I I have an Ansible playbook It does a snapshot of my VMs and I copy the deltas all through an Ansible playbook, which I'm planning on publishing my entire collection of Ansible playbooks that I use. Looking forward to seeing that. Now for me, what I actually do is I don't 
run my VMs locally on my hypervisor. I have an NFS share set up on my NAS over 10 gig. And I use the built-in snapshotting function of the NAS to handle those backups for me. And the reason why I do that is because the only way that Proxmox will back up its VMs is all or nothing. If you're using the single Proxmox host. Proxmox does have its own backup server, which is designed to run on another piece of bare metal as the backup destination. And, and I can see that being usable in a disaster recovery environment, but for my intents and purposes at home, it's a bit much. So having the NAS available as my storage host, where I can take BTRFS snapshots and then manipulate that share however I want, tends to work the best for me. Yeah, I've thought about just doing the ButterFS snapshots myself, because that's where all my, my VMs are running on the same host as the hypervisor. I don't need shared storage because I'm not I'm not doing multiple hosts anymore. I used to do hyper hyperconverged with overt, so overt plus cluster. So I don't have that luxury anymore of utilizing Gluster's capabilities for handling um, snapshots and and uh, all the and the backup interface and in overt. So I kind of had to recreate that myself, but that's uh, I'm okay with that at this point. I know that XCPNG does support snapshot, full delta differential, incremental, disaster recovery built into its Zen orchestrator appliance. And I think that's a really nice feature to have baked into the hypervisor. It's the one thing that I wish Cockpit had baked in. One of the things I wish that XCPNG had was an easy way of setting up a hyper-converged infrastructure. Right now, the, really the only two open source hyper-convert, I, I guess three, you, I'll, I'll include the, the, the three, that can do it out of the box is Overt. Overt's still around, and so I'll, I'll include it. Harvester, if you're not familiar with har uh, Harvester, I, I I mentioned it earlier. It's a kubevert-based solution, but it uses Longhorn for the storage. Uh, that uh, Longhorn is a software-defined storage solution, mostly focused on block storage for containers, developed by, originally developed by Rancher, and then uh, OpenShift uh, virtualization, which uh, is installed along with a, an OpenShift cluster, typically utilizing uh, Ceph plus Rook and Nuba for its uh, storage capabilities, but mostly using the Ceph capabilities, obviously for block. So that's uh, really, Ozone. as far as I'm aware, the only three pure play hyper-converged solutions, unless Proxmox can now do like Ceph or Gluster. It can, it can, it can do Ceph or Gluster out of the box. But can, can it do it on the same node? That, that sure. That's the only thing I'm not sure on. Okay. And maybe okay then okay well uh, maybe uh, maybe a fourth there that that that's nice to see because right now the only ones are proprietary right? you have Nutanix VMware with vSAN I guess you can use Nutanix for free the last when I downloaded um, the Nutanix Community Edition for some research for work I think it was about it. Two years old, the ISO that I that I got. So I don't know if it's still doing the uh, the community edition or not. But it, then again, that's still not um, an open source solution. I digress on the uh, 
on that. You know, since we brought up Kubernetes-based solutions, something that makes VMs look more like containers in some regards. With uh, in terms of containerization, I've been th- doing a lot more thinking of when is the best time to use a VM or a container. One of the things I personally try to try not to do is lifting and shifting. I, if uh, something's working on a particular platform, I try not to move it unless I'm like, like I just did, like I'm shutting down a, ho- a ho- uh, hardware just because it's uh, several years old and it's uh, not really working out anymore. I've been thinking about when to best use containers. So I've been utilizing Podman a lot more lately. So I don't know, Bill, if you've been using containers more, uh, whether in your day job or in home lab, What's been your approach to this? Like, I, for me, it's mostly been new applications. Like, in some cases, I'm not, or I may not be using Podman. I'm probably using Docker or something that is orchestrating the containers. Like, for example, I'm using Home Assistant, and Home Assistant has its own distribution and its own way of uh, handling the container management on the on the Raspberry Pi. So it's using Docker. But that that for me, that was a a new-ish application. It's just running on bare a bare metal Pi. And a few other things that I've been thinking about moving to containers or just because it might make more sense, like my file syncing s- solution or using a only office. So, so only office is running in a container, partially because you know I just took the container file and uh, tweaked it a bit to work with Podman and boom off to the races what, what's been your what, what's been your approach to that if you've been looking at containers i will openly admit right here right now on this show that containers and i are not friends i have had a mixed journey with containerization platforms uh for me containerization technology is a punching bag that likes to hit me back twice as hard as i hit it so my greatest success with containers has been Docker and Portainer because being a very visual person, I see where things kind of connect and work together and where they don't. I like what Podman offers. I like what Podman can do integrating with Kubernetes, you know, a much more seamless transfer or migration into Kubernetes. But where I fell down with Podman was, again, going back to cockpit, trying to create a whole pod with multiple containers in it, which unfortunately wasn't available at the time. In my day job, because I work for a managed services provider that is mainly Microsoft focused, I don't really interface with containers, except when I'm trying to set up different open source projects in a, in a responsible manner. What I have learned along the way is that not all container files are built equally and not all will play nice as they were meant to. So I won't name the project here, but I have been rolling out an open source project at a few of my schools, trying to use it in a containerized environment. It simply would not work. I ended up having to build it in a VM monolithic on its own. And that's the way I've had success with it. It, incorporates into our backup software and backup structure. And I feel comfortable knowing that the data that's in that system is intact. I've been doing kind of like a best of both worlds type of thing here. (laughs) 
in some ways. Uh, Why not? Use the right tool for the job. Yeah. So, well, well, in the well, in this case, like uh, with Podman, there's a feature called Podman Machines. Yeah. What does Podman Machines do for you? Uh, it spins up a, a Fedora Core OS virtual machine uh, running Podman. That's where you run your Podman containers. So I've been kind of doing both. I've been doing like right there locally on the battle, or I'm using Podman machines that will then run my containers, mostly for development purposes, or I want to just test something really quick without it having uh, any other impact anywhere else. I, I have more storage allocated in my uh, uh, virtualization pool than I do in my container pool. My container pool actually uses less uh, because just the nature of containers uses less uh, storage because I'm not installing a full host. So I'm able to do a bit more with Podman Machines. So Podman Machines kind of gives you the, because you can interact with it through Versh. So thus you can interact with it in Cockpit. So you can snapshot it if you need to. You can roll it back. There's all kinds of stuff you can still do, maybe not recommended. So then you can dip your toe, do some tests, dip, you know, then do it somewhere else. I've been doing a lot with, uh, with Podman machines. One of the things that's been very attractive to me, especially recently, I did, there were some things I didn't know about Podman. I've been just I've been utilizing Podman the way I've been utilizing the way I used to utilize Docker. I just would start up a container and go, just and just let it go. Podman has some capabilities that I didn't know were there. For example, you can generate systemd files to start up your container and also do some changes into systemd to automatically update container images. That's pretty slick. Yeah. The other one that I didn't realize you could do is this awesome, awesome command called kubeplay. I discovered this uh, sometime last year, but I really didn't much with it until recently. And this allows you to take Kubernetes YAML and, and run it directly. So you can take a Kubernetes application and run it on Podman. To me, that was magic in some ways. Better than for me, it was better than Docker Compose, only because I'm starting to see more applications not shipping a Docker Compose file. They're shipping a the ability to run it on Kubernetes. That's been my journey lately with containers. Is the is learning this. Because uh, as I start thinking about replacing things or putting things in containers, because it makes more sense, because I'm redeploying it. Like if I, I'm not doing, li I don't do lift and shifts. I'm redeploy, I'm redeploying applications in many regards. It's stuff I, re that's the way I recommend it to my customers. It's what I recommend. So I kind of am doing what I preach instead of doing that lift and shift move. It's definitely made things more fun. I actually have to rethink the way things are. Yeah, as much as I like virtual machines, I actually think, I, and I don't think virtualization is going anywhere any, anytime soon, but the architecture decisions in companies and thus the architecture decisions we make for our home labs, it, it's containerization. So understanding how to make a container, make a containerized application work, or just taking an existing application and making it a containerized application it just you know, it, you're rethinking how how it all go, how it all is put together because you're not just spinning up a virtual machine now and putting your database on it 
and the application. You're spinning up a Postgres container and taking that application, uh, that putting that application in a container and connecting those two things, whether that's over a network or just on the local Podman network on a single host. So you you have to rethink the way you're doing these things. Or maybe that doesn't make sense for everyone, especially in a home lab. Not saying that's what you should do, but as things evolve at our jobs, typically, um, that's how our uh, home labs evolve appropriately. Well, I go back to my first. I go back to my first home lab, which was a 25U rack that was sitting by the side of a parking lot, waiting for a nice home. And what containerization has done is it's allowed me to answer a conundrum that I had 15 years ago, which was, okay, I've got these four hosts and I want to run 10 lamp appliances. Where do I run the database versus the web application? Should I put all of the databases in one VM and then use something like PHP MyAdmin to manage those databases? Or should I have standalone VMs with the database embedded inside of it? And the beautiful thing about containers is that it answers those questions for you in a way that you can do it however you want, but you have more flexibility and resource preservation at the same time. I can already hear some of the people objecting. Brandon, they've had virtualization plus containers for a long time. It's called a uh, OpenVZ or or Proxmox with uh, LXC. All right, I can I can already hear the that hear that. The only reason why I've I have not brought those up. They're not ubiquitous. They're used in niche use cases. Cool if it works for you. It's just something that is not there. It, it it's stuff that we don't run across in in a in the real world. I know it's out there. Otherwise, it wouldn't be. Uh, what made containers ubiquitous was Docker, and now uh, Podman and Docker and Kubernetes. I do run some containers in LXC on my Prox host, and what I like about it is that I have an easy ability to change the IP address of the container on my bridged network if I want to very easily, where that can be difficult if you're not familiar with Docker or Podman networking concepts and commands. The networking concepts, well, and Podman are more are more closely related to Kubernetes, but yeah, it, it is more difficult because in the Kubernetes world, you want to give a container an external interface. You need to use Multis. For those who aren't familiar, Multis is a, essentially attaches a virtual interface to a container, so it can have its own i uh, have an external IP. That, that that that's essentially what it does. Also makes it easier for you to do uh, like network acceleration capabilities that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Yeah, there's a lot more steps. It, that that's what's uh, being used in the real world. Bill, thanks for jumping on and hanging out with me today and talking about virtualization and containers. Always happy to join you. It's a great time being in the Sudo show. I learn something every time I'm here. Yeah, hopefully we can get Neil on on the next one. You you're you two are supposed to interrogate me at some point. Oh, we we are actively working on the plan to interrogate Brandon. We have an amazing intro. I don't want to give anything away, but we're going to have a lot of fun with it. It'll be great to turn the tables on you for once. All right. 
Uh, I'm looking forward to it. All the links for the for the projects mentioned, even some that we did not, will be in the show notes. And if uh, really they just didn't come up in natural conversation, they'll be in the show notes if you're interested in them. Looking forward to catching everyone on the next episode. Thanks for listening to The Pseudo Show, where business meets open source. <laughs>